Chapter 4, Part 1 The Invasion of Iraq, March to April 2003 Of The U.S. Army in the Iraq War, Volume 1 By U.S. Army Operation Iraqi Freedom Study Group This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adam Cable Chapter 4, Part 1 The Invasion of Iraq, March to April 2003 Chapter 4. The Invasion of Iraq, March to April 2003. Page 81. On March 21, 2003, the main coalition force in Kuwait launched its attack into Iraq, beginning an operation that toppled Saddam Hussein's regime in just 20 days, much less time than anyone, especially Saddam, had anticipated. There were other surprises on the way to Baghdad as well. The coalition's maneuver forces expected to defeat and bypass depleted or capitulated Iraqi army units in southern Iraq en route to the more robust Republican Guard units protecting the main avenues of approach into Baghdad. Instead of Iraqi armor and infantry, however, coalition forces Land Component Command, or CFLCC, units found themselves engaged in fierce firefights with the Fedayeen and other paramilitary forces Saddam sent to reinforce the defense in and around Iraq's southern cities. This unexpected enemy attacked from the urban centers CFLCC intended to bypass, ambushed a transportation company on the second day of the invasion, and derailed the first scheduled helicopter deep attack against the Medina Division of the Republican Guard. U.S. Special Operations Forces in western Iraq fought additional battles with paramilitary forces in the vicinity of Rutba and the Haditha Dam, while the Special Operations Task Force in northern Iraq worked with Kurdish Peshmerga and the Coalition Forces Air Component Command, or CFACC, to defeat a stubborn defense by Iraq's northernmost conventional forces. Amid these unexpected circumstances, a major sandstorm halted the invasion for days, but gave CFLCC units an opportunity to gather themselves for an unexpected quick push to Baghdad. As the outgunned Iraqi forces defending Baghdad collapsed in disarray, troops from the 3rd Infantry Division conducted armored raids termed Thunder Runs into the capital city between April 5th and 7th, 2003. After this, the regime collapsed although most of northern and western Iraq remained uncontrolled by the coalition forces. The Invasion Begins Page 81 Shaping Operations March 17-19, 2003 By March 17, 2003, the last of the United Nations, or UN, weapons inspectors departed Iraq, and intelligence suggested that Iraq ceased its destruction of the Samud missiles it possessed, apparently in violation of the agreements it had made to destroy them. That evening, then-President George W. Bush announced that Saddam and his sons had 48 hours to step down or face, quote, military conflict at a time of our choosing, end quote, signaling to the world and his military commanders that the long-expected attack was imminent. On March 19, 2003, Bush announced that coalition forces had begun operations to remove Saddam's regime from power. As the president made his announcement, multiple special operations units were conducting shaping operations in preparation for the CFLCC invasion, scheduled to begin on the evening of March 21st. Combined Joint Special Operations Task Force West, or CJSOTFW, under the command of Colonel John F. Mulholland, was responsible for southern and western Iraq, 
Baghdad, and the area northwest of Baghdad to Tikrit. They were to find and destroy Saddam's suspected long-range ballistic missiles and launch sites in order to prevent attacks against Israel that might provoke the Israelis to enter the war. Some of the first coalition troops to enter Iraq consisted of special operations detachments who infiltrated through Iraq's southwestern desert to link up with tribes and resistance groups. They also secured an airfield at Wadi al-Kir, approximately 80 kilometers west of Najaf, as a launch point for further infiltrations into western and southwestern Iraq. On March 19th, CJSOTFW units breached the berms along Iraq's border with Jordan to begin their scud-hunting mission. Meanwhile, in southern Iraq, Captain Robert S. Harward's Naval Special Warfare Group was responsible for securing Iraq's southern gas and oil platforms and for supporting 1st Marine Expeditionary Force, or 1st MEF, operations. On March 19th, at 9 p.m., the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment attacked Iraqi observation posts across the Kuwait border, while the Naval Special Warfare Task Force, along with British and Polish commandos, secured the oil platforms off the shore of the Fa Peninsula, Umm Qasr, and Rumaila. Special Operations Detachments from CJSOTFW simultaneously positioned themselves near key crossing sites and bridges in the vicinity of Nasiriyah and Samawa as CFLCC forces moved northward, and another Special Operations Detachment began moving toward the Karbala Gap. Colonel Charles Cleveland's Combined Joint Special Operations Task Force North, or CJSOTFN, which was responsible for all territory north of the Green Line, Nineveh Province, and Kirkuk, ordered elements of the 10th Special Forces Group to make their way to the Peshmerga leadership in advance of the CJSOTFN main body. Their task was to expand relationships with the Kurds that had existed since Operation Provide Comfort and to develop a northern front despite Turkey's refusal to authorize coalition transit across its borders. Elements from CJSOTFN also began working toward one of their non-Iraqi military targets, the Ansar al-Islam enclave in northeastern Iraq. The president's March 17th ultimatum had also triggered a large-scale coalition psychological operation designed to encourage specific behaviors from Iraqi soldiers. Leaflets dropped on Iraqi military positions urged the soldiers to capitulate, but to remain available for recall once the regime was no longer in power. Tape-recorded phone calls to specific Iraqi military leaders sent the same message while also discouraging Iraqi commanders from using Saddam's suspected chemical weapons stockpile against the coalition. Separate leaflet drops in Baghdad emphasized to the population in the capital that the coalition's targets were Saddam and the Ba'ath Party regime, not the Iraqi people. Leaflets dropped on the Rumaila oil fields in southern Iraq urged the Iraqis there not to destroy the oil infrastructure, the heart of Iraq's wealth. CENTCOM also prepared a letter for the northern Iraqi army commanders signed by Deputy Commander Lieutenant General John Abazade, stating, quote, if you deliver northern Iraq to us, you will be absolved and given immunity. End quote. The letter was passed by special operations forces in northern Iraq to couriers who were supposed to provide it to the Iraqi Corps commanders in the north. These operations had varying degrees of success. The leaflets in southern Iraq may have achieved part of their intended result, as the Iraqis ultimately destroyed only a handful of wells in the southern oil fields. Later evidence indicated Iraqi regime officials might have simply ignored instructions from Baghdad to destroy oil infrastructure. 
The accuracy with which the leaflets landed on regime targets and Iraqi military formations, quote, shook some of the Iraqi military commanders, end quote, to their core, leading them to conclude that if the Americans could attack their positions with paper so accurately, then lethal munitions would be just as precise. Some of the Iraqi units in southern Iraq began to experience large numbers of desertions after the leaflets fell, but the anticipated large-scale capitulations or whole unit surrenders did not occur. Iraqi units in northern Iraq, however, did not appear to be capitulating at all. Interrogations of captured Iraqi military leaders later established that, while the leaflets were received, Iraqis in the north did not follow the leaflets' instructions because of a combination of miscommunication and threats. Some Iraqi soldiers who fought in northern Iraq were coerced into fighting by the Iraqi military leaders who threatened to shoot deserters. Interrogations also revealed that the quality of the Arabic on the leaflets was so poor that Iraqi soldiers reading them were confused about what the coalition wanted them to do. Turkey's very public refusal to authorize U.S. forces to invade from Turkish territory limited northern capitulations as well because it left the Iraqi divisions arrayed on the Green Line with the belief that they would not be facing a significant coalition threat from the north and would pay no price for remaining in place. Disposition of Iraqi Forces Page 83 in the week prior to the invasion, the Iraqi military was only partially prepared for what was to come. After months of misplaced confidence that the U.S.-led coalition would not invade Iraq at all, Saddam finally began to prepare to defend against an increasingly likely coalition offensive just weeks ahead of the actual invasion. Nevertheless, the Iraqi leader's defensive preparations were as unrealistic as his previous assumptions about U.S. intentions. Despite the massive U.S. buildup in Kuwait, Saddam believed that the main coalition attack would come from the West, and therefore most of his Republican Guard forces were oriented toward Jordan, rather than to the South. He also left his 1st Army Corps in Kirkuk and 5th Army Corps in Mosul, though both were available to be moved, and many of his conventional army forces remained facing toward the East to guard against opportunistic attacks from Iran. Saddam and his military leaders divided Iraq's forces into four zones, northern, central, central Euphrates, and southern. The northern zone was spread across Nineveh and Tamim, or Kirkuk, provinces, and was commanded by Saddam's vice president, Izat Ibrahim al-Duri. The central zone consisted of Baghdad, Anbar, Salahuddin, and portions of Wasit province, and was commanded by Qusay Hussein, who controlled four Republican Guard divisions and the 2nd Iraqi Army Corps. The Fatah Corps of the Republican Guard, which included the Medina, Nida, and Baghdad divisions, was positioned to defend Baghdad from the west and south, with the Medina division arrayed in the vicinity of Suwaira, Musayib, and Karbala, and the Nida division east of the Diyala River and in Bakaba. The Allahu Akbar Corps of the Republican Guard was deployed to defend northern Baghdad with the Hammurabi, Adnan, and Nebuchadnezzar divisions of the Republican Guard. To the west, the Iraqi Border Command defended the frontier and the western approaches with a few border brigades reinforced by a special forces regiment. While not capable of mounting a significant military defense, the border brigades had the ability to observe and report on enemy forces in their sectors. The central Euphrates and southern zones were much more sparsely manned. The former, which included Babil, Karbala, Qadisiya, Najaf, and Mutana provinces, was only defended by the Iraqi regime's Quds forces and Ba'ath party militias. 
The southern zone, Basra, Mysen, and Dikar provinces, contained the 3rd and 4th Iraqi Army Corps as well as some naval forces. Like the 2nd Army Corps in the central zone, however, the primary task for these conventional forces was to defend against an Iranian attack. While Saddam's idea of a reserve was unclear, Iraqi military leaders recommended using the Quds Force as a reserve in the southern zone. An Early Start, March 19th to 23rd, 2003 After Bush's March 19th announcement that an invasion was imminent, G-Hour, the time at which CFLCC ground forces would cross the border between Iraq and Kuwait, was set for 9 p.m. on March 21, 2003. However, two intelligence indicators caused the President and Secretary of Defense, or SECDEF, to initiate ground operations before the planned hour. On March 19, intelligence reports suggested that Saddam and some of his key advisors were at a location in southern Baghdad called Dora Farms. CFACC launched cruise missiles at that location to destroy the regime's leadership, marking the first attack on Iraqi soil and effectively alerting Iraq's leaders that the invasion had begun. Although the reports were inaccurate, Saddam in fact had last visited that site in 1995, and the missile strike ineffective, the message was clear. Coalition forces were coming for Saddam. The Iraqi regime responded with a series of 17 missile strikes on CFLCC encampments in Kuwait, all of which either missed their intended targets or were destroyed by coalition air defenses. During this missile barrage from the Iraqi military, U.S. Central Command, or CENTCOM, and CFLCC encountered a difficulty with the British contingent. The invasion plan called for the British to advance alongside the Marines and, quote, pass through al-Basra and continue up the eastern flank. End quote. However, less than 24 hours before the ground attack, Abizaid and General Tommy Franks received a letter from the British command indicating that officials in London were unsure whether combat operations in Iraq were legal and might not allow British troops to cross the border. The date of the invasion came close on the heels of a key vote in the United Kingdom that could have lost Prime Minister Tony Blair his government and, consequently, the British military's authorization to support the invasion. While Franks's initial thought was to continue the invasion without the British forces, Abizaid convinced him that CFLCC was already short one division and that removing the British forces put the mission at risk. Franks then approached SECDEF Donald Rumsfeld and within hours, the senior British commander informed CENTCOM that the British forces would, indeed, participate in the invasion. The other trigger for the early onset of ground operations was the detection by unmanned aerial vehicles, or UAVs, of Iraqi forces preparing to sabotage the oil infrastructure in southern Iraq. Because preserving Iraq's oil infrastructure was one of his key tasks, General David McKiernan decided to initiate ground operations as quickly as possible. In the late hours of March 20th, the 3rd Infantry Division, 101st Airborne Division, and 1st MEF moved into their attack positions in Kuwait. As soon as the sand berm between Iraq and Kuwait was sufficiently reduced, CFLCC ground forces, led by the 1st Battalion, 7th Marines, crossed the border and moved immediately to the Rumaila oil fields. The time was approximately 4 a.m. on March 21, 2003. The coalition's early move into Iraq took senior Iraqi regime leaders by surprise. The leaflet drops had reinforced Saddam's assumption that the coalition had planned for a lengthy air campaign, perhaps to be followed by a limited ground incursion. 
because CFACCE could not adjust its complicated targeting mechanisms in time to conduct their operations simultaneously with the ground forces, they began their bombing campaign at the scheduled G hour of 2100 on March 21st, 17 hours after the ground forces had begun their advance, targeting the regime's top leaders, air defenses, and artillery and ballistic missile sites. As coalition units moved farther into Iraq, CFACC's targeting transitioned to focus on close air support. Ultimately, the delayed air campaign assisted the ground forces in achieving tactical surprise. The Iraqis were convinced that the coalition would not commence ground operations until after a lengthy air campaign and were unprepared when coalition ground forces materialized in southern Iraq. Thus, as 5th Corps and 1st MEF approached the Iraqi 1st Infantry Division and 51st Mechanized Division, respectively, they encountered far fewer Iraqi troops than they anticipated, with the Iraqis mounting only a disorganized, sporadic defense. CFLCC later determined that some of the Iraqi forces had deserted after the leaflet drops, while others fled to the surprising sound of approaching tanks and mechanized vehicles instead of the coalition air campaign they expected. As soon as 1st MEF and 5th Corps forces crossed the berm, they began maneuvering toward their initial objectives. 1st MEF and the British 1st Armored Division moved to the east of 5th Corps toward Al-Fah, Umm Qasr, and the Rumaila oil fields. According to Iraqi Lieutenant General Rad al-Hamdani, the first attackers to come in direct contact with the Iraqi forces were British troops who, in conjunction with the 1st MEF, seized the port of Umm Qasr and the bridges over the Shat al-Arab from the Iraqi 51st Mechanized Division, which had only arrived in the area about 72 hours earlier. The British 3rd Royal Marine Commando Brigade, 1st MEF, and other special operations forces secured the oil fields and then headed for Nasiriyah, leaving the British armored forces to isolate, secure, and clear southern Iraq's largest population center, Basra, of Iraqi forces. CENTCOM and CFLCC had expected at least a portion of the British forces to continue with 1st MEF north toward Baghdad, but as the operation unfolded, the British troops remained in Basra, a change that Abizaid believed to be the result of a British national directive to British commanders. CFLCC adjusted and sent the Marines north without the British forces, while 3rd Infantry Division, the 5th Corps main effort, advanced toward Talil Airfield near Nasiriyah. At Talil, where CFLCC intended to establish its main logistics and aviation hub for the march to Baghdad, the 3rd Infantry Division easily defeated remnants of the Iraqi 11th Infantry Division and members of the Basra-based Iraqi Quds forces and continued towards Nasiriyah. An Unexpected Enemy in the days leading up to the invasion, the coalition's reconnaissance had focused on Iraqi defensive positions, signs that Saddam might flood the southern canals or destroy the oil infrastructure, the locations of surface-to-surface -surface missiles, and the disposition of the Republican Guard divisions. CFLCC paid little attention to Iraq's irregular forces, and even less was known about what to expect from those forces other than that they were paramount to the defense of Baghdad and key regime locations. The other major movement that went largely undetected due to the dearth of intelligence collection directed toward it was the repositioning of the Fedayeen Saddam from Baghdad to Iraq's southern cities. Special operations detachments in position in the Karbala Gap began to realize something was amiss on March 22nd when they did not observe armored columns of the Medina division they had expected to be there, but instead saw trucks filled with Fedayeen in black uniforms. 
When their reports were received by CFSOCC and CFLCC headquarters, they were met with incredulity. No one in the coalition command understood what the irregular Iraqi forces were doing there, let alone their composition and capability. At Nasiriyah, Samawa, and Zubair, CFLCC units first unexpectedly encountered tenacious resistance from the Fediyin instead of the Iraqi army units they had anticipated fighting. In accordance with the invasion plan, the 3rd Infantry Division deliberately stayed outside of Nasiriyah, blocked the city, secured the crossing site on Highway 1 over the Euphrates River, and prepared to pass the 2nd Marine Expeditionary Brigade, or Task Force Tarawa, through its lines to occupy Nasiriyah and the secured bridge. The 3rd Infantry Division could continue north to Samawa. Task Force Tarawa, commanded by Brigadier General Richard F. Natonsky, arrived at Nasiriyah on March 22nd and took control of the Highway 1 bridge from the 3rd Infantry Division, which continued west. In addition to assuming responsibility for that bridge, the task force was directed to secure two bridges in the eastern part of the city that would facilitate the continued rapid movement of 1st MEF north to Kut along Highway 7. Natonsky's goal was to have both locations secure by 10 a.m. on March 23rd and to avoid getting bogged down in urban combat. As his forces moved into the city, they took a barrage of artillery as well as small arms fire from irregular forces moving around in trucks mounted with machine guns. The assaults became more frequent and powerful, and Nasiriyah transformed from a mission to secure bridges into what McKiernan described as, quote, a damned tough urban fight, end quote. The Marines and CFLCC soon determined that the enemy they faced must be the Fediyin. The Fediyin death squads, as reporters began to call them, did not appear to conduct large-scale coordinated operations. Instead, they attacked haphazardly in small groups, using well-rehearsed guerrilla tactics. They operated out of Ba'ath Party headquarters and military facilities, but they also used hospitals, schools, and mosques as bases, and did not hesitate to use civilians as human shields. Some wore black uniforms, but many wore plain clothes and drove civilian vehicles so they could blend into the population ahead of the coalition advance. Their lack of uniforms often led to nighttime battles in extremely close quarters, with Fediyin fighters crawling up beside coalition tanks and armored vehicles, requiring crew members to fight them off with pistols and captured Iraqi AK-47s. The ferocity of the Fediyin attacks also surprised the coalition. Fediyin attacked coalition vehicle and troop formations, quote, in waves, in an almost suicidal manner, end quote. Fifth Corps' first encounter with the Fediyin occurred as the 3rd Squadron, 7th Cavalry, 3rd Infantry Division screened for the division en route to Samawa. Although special forces units reported that the Fediyin were setting up ambush teams and checkpoints around Samawa, that information had not filtered down to Fifth Corps' tactical units. As the troops prepared to seize the bridges southwest of Samawa, they waved to some Iraqis, anticipating that the Iraqis would welcome them. Instead, they received small arms, rocket-propelled grenade, or RPG, and mortar fire from Fediyin and pickup trucks. The cavalry squadron remained under fire until they were relieved by 3rd Brigade, 3rd Infantry Division on the afternoon of March 23rd. In conjunction with CFACC close air support and special operations units in the area, the 3rd Infantry Division systematically began destroying irregular forces in and around Samawa. Intelligence on the location of the Fediyin units did not come from the Joint Surveillance Target Attack Radar System, or JSTARS, UAVs, and other similar systems that the division had rehearsed using in exercises prior the invasion. Instead, 
3rd Infantry Division leaders found themselves using the Division Cavalry Squadron and Special Operations Units to locate enemy forces. This more traditional tactical reconnaissance capability became the 3rd Infantry Division's eyes and ears on the battlefield. In Zubair, a Sunni-majority suburb west of Basra, the British 1st Armored Division also came under heavy fire from irregular forces. After probing the enemy it faced, the division placed checkpoints around the town. During the day, local Iraqis approached the British checkpoints, surrendered, and then identified the location of Republican Guard, Fedayeen, and Ba'ath Party headquarters and strongpoints inside Zubair. The division then conducted nighttime raids into the town to destroy the Iraqi forces and weapons in those facilities and add to their emerging intelligence picture. The Iraqis, meanwhile, were astonished that the coalition appeared to be bypassing the southern cities entirely and leaving their supply lines along the Euphrates open to attack. They had assumed coalition units would at least partially secure each city along their intended avenues of approach, and early reports of heavy fighting near the outskirts of Zubair, Nasiriya, and Samawa had reinforced this Iraqi assumption. Once it became clear that the coalition units operating near these cities had no intention of remaining for any length of time, the high command in Baghdad ordered reinforcements against the Marines in Nasiriya. By March 23rd, a little over two days into the ground fight, nearly all tactical reporting on enemy activities shifted from conventional troop formations and movements to reports of irregular forces, especially the Fedayeen. The intelligence analysts at CFLCC and 5th Corps assessed that the bulk of the regular Iraqi army units in southern Iraq had either surrendered or deserted, but that Fedayeen and other, quote, local security forces seemed to be offering the most resistance encountered thus far, end quote, manning abandoned Iraqi army weapon systems, establishing ambush points, and returning small arms fire. The drastic change in the enemy situation confounded the coalition's operational-level analysis and collection systems, which struggled to fit the incoming information into pre-existing templates of a conventional enemy and tried vainly to maintain the sophisticated digital battle maps with company-sized and larger enemy formations. This pattern of bottom-driven reporting from tactical units and an inaccurate and outdated enemy picture at the operational headquarters persisted for the remainder of the invasion. Special Operations Forces Move Inward With major combat operations underway in the south, Special Operations Units expanded their operations in western and northern Iraq. On the evening of March 22nd, elements of 5th Special Forces Group linked up at the improved airfield at Wadi al-Kir and met with their established Iraqi contacts in the vicinity of Nasiriya, Samawa, Hilla, Karbala, and Najaf to obtain a better picture of enemy and friendly activity within those cities. This mission was imperiled when two of these Iraqi contacts were captured by Iraqi troops, who broadcast the capture on television. Special operations units subsequently decided to forego using resistance organizations in those cities, and instead spent the next several days gathering as much information as possible about the location of the Ba'ath and Fedayeen headquarters, artillery positions, and military compounds in preparation for 3rd Infantry Division's arrival in the area. Other Operational Detachment Alphas, or ODAs, pushed forward to obtain information about the activity of enemy forces in the Karbala Gap, the Republican Guard Medina Division in particular. In the West, CJSOTFW and other coalition troops searched for Scud missiles and suspected weapons of mass destruction, or WMD, sites. 
At the same time as the invasion began in southern Iraq, special operations detachments moving along Highway 1 toward Rutba encountered a line of traffic in which Iraqi military forces were dispersed among the civilian vehicles. The detachment called in close air support and was able to defeat the military forces, but had effectively announced their presence in the West. A similar announcement came when British Special Operations Forces under the command of Major General Graham Lamb in CJSOTFW inadvertently clashed with Iraqi Special Mission Units on their way to link up with Iraqi tribes in southern Iraq. Traveling in lightly armored tactical vehicles, Lamb's special operators were forced to withdraw, and some of his troops inadvertently ended up across the Syrian border. Meanwhile, in the north, CJSOTFN moved into Iraq in a hastily prepared high-risk air insertion operation the special operations troops nicknamed Ugly Baby because, they joked, quote, only a mother could love it, end quote. After Turkey refused to allow U.S. forces to cross into Iraq from its country, Combined Forces Special Operations Component Command, or CFSOCC, and CFACC developed aggressive flight paths along the western spine of Iraq's border with Jordan and Syria. As the aircraft flew over Sinjar Mountain, some were struck by Iraqi air defenses, but the need to get on the ground and show the Kurdish Peshmerga the extent of U.S. resolve was great enough that the insertion mission pushed forward. By the first week in April, more than 50 special operations detachments were inserted into northern Iraq and made contact with forces from the Kurdistan Democratic Party, or KDP, and the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan, or PUK. In addition to notifying Kurdish leaders that the Americans were coming, CJSOTFN units were tasked to reinforce the 65,000-strong Peshmerga against the Iraqi Army and Republican Guard Corps positioned along the Green Line and to destroy the Ansar al-Islam enclaves in Suleimania province. Their third and more subtle task was to ensure that the Kurds did not take the opportunity to annex Kirkuk, which the United States intended to remain under coalition and eventually Iraqi government control. The U.S. special operations leaders on the ground with the Kurds convinced reluctant Turkish officials to reopen Turkish airspace for use in the invasion, after which CJSOTFN coordinated with CFACC to destroy established Iraqi Army and Republican Guard defenses. After falling back from their prepared positions due to an untenable amount of coalition firepower, the Iraqi Army Corps and Republican Guard units retreated. CJSOTFN then used Kurdish reporting and other sources to locate and destroy additional Iraqi military equipment and formations while they prepared to continue south. Setbacks and a Change in Plans for CFLCC Page 90 Despite crumbling Iraqi divisions and the rapid advance of the coalition divisions in the south, not all went well in the first days of CFLCC's invasion. The A-10 aircraft called in to attack moving enemy targets north of Nasiriya on March 23rd mistakenly attacked a company of Marines instead, killing as many as 10 Marines and wounding several others. Combined with those killed or wounded by enemy fire that day, Marine losses in the city totaled 18 killed and at least 19 wounded, the highest losses of any single engagement during the invasion. Fratricide was not the only bad news from Nasiriya. The first strong signal that CFLCC lines of communications were threatened occurred just outside the city when Marines from Task Force Tarawa encountered a U.S. Army convoy driving south toward them on Highway 7 on March 23rd. 
This was a surprise meeting, given that there were no plans or rehearsals suggesting that any army units were ahead of the Marines along the eastern approach. An army captain then informed the Marines that there were wounded American soldiers in Nasiriya. This was the ill-fated 507th Maintenance Company, a unit that had accidentally driven into Nasiriya instead of around it. Ambushed by the Fediyin in the city, the 507th lost 11 killed and 9 wounded, with 7 of the 9 captured by Iraqi forces, including Private First Class Jessica Lynch. As the Marines fought in Nasiriya, 5th Corps prepared for one of the most significant planned operations of the invasion, a deep aviation attack against the Republican Guard's Medina Division, the main conventional force defending Baghdad. On March 22nd, the 101st Airborne Division moved along the 3rd Infantry Division's western flank to establish refueling points for itself and the 11th Attack Helicopter Regiment in preparation for two deep strikes through the Karbala Gap. There was an urgency to the operation. CFLCC expected a major sandstorm to arrive sometime on March 24th, which would either delay or cancel the planned deep attacks altogether if they were not executed beforehand. In order to use the Western Avenue of Approach and avoid urban areas, the 11th Attack Helicopter Regiment would require a flight path that crossed the boundary between the 3rd Infantry Division and the 101st Airborne Division, a request the 101st denied. The final chosen flight path moved instead from southwest of Nasiriya west toward Samawa and then turned north, risking taking the helicopters past urban areas. The attack went awry from the outset. The preparatory suppression of enemy air defense fires took place on time, but the 11th Attack Helicopter Regiment's departure was delayed two hours as its aircraft refueled, desynchronizing the attack from its preparatory fires. While the suppressive fires were able to destroy some enemy air defense systems, they also unintentionally provided early warning of the helicopter attack. Iraqi spotters, who were now primed to look for approaching aircraft, notified awaiting forces via cell phone of the impending attack exactly as General Lewis Wallace had once predicted during his 1990s experiences at the National Training Center. Intercepted signals of Iraqi early warning, although received by higher coalition headquarters, did not reach the regiment before their departure. Finally, the bright moonlight that evening perfectly silhouetted the aircraft against the clouds and made them prime targets for the Iraqis. As the regiment's aircraft approached the built-up areas along their flight path, Lights in the cities of Haswa and Iskandaria were switched off, signaling to Iraqi forces on rooftops to launch barrages of anti-aircraft and small arms fire that inflicted significant damage on the American helicopters. The 11th Attack Helicopter Regiment was forced to abort the mission long before reaching the Medina Division, and the damaged aircraft returned to their staging point. Of the 30 AH-64 Apaches that had left that evening, one was shot down, and all 29 that returned were damaged by enemy fire. The capture of the 507th Maintenance Company personnel and the fierce fighting in Zubair, Nasiriya, and Samawa convinced McKiernan and Wallace that CFLCC and 5th Corps could no longer bypass urban areas en route to Baghdad. In order to protect the force's vulnerable lines of communications, CFLCC would have to allocate forces to clear the towns and villages along and near Highways 1 and 8. In addition, 1st MEF determined that parts of Task Force Tarawa would need to remain in Nasiriya and continue clearing operations until all of the bridges crossing the Euphrates and the Saddam Canal were secure. 
The failed helicopter attack against the Medina Division also illustrated the peril of not clearing urban areas along the lines of communications and discouraged the further use of attack aviation in that manner. Quote, From that point on, I was not at all confident we could execute a successful deep operation with helicopters, and we didn't need to, Wallace later recalled. Over-the-shoulder direct ground fires was the best tactic given the uncertainty of the enemy situation, and General McKiernan agreed. End quote. The Sandstorm and Operational Pause, page 91. As the expected sandstorm blew in on March 24th, bringing with it violent rain and limited visibility that halted coalition units' advance, McKiernan and Wallace made significant adjustments to how they planned to use their forces before maneuvering through the Karbala Gap. The two commanders welcomed the operational pause as an opportunity to posture their forces properly before the final attacks on Baghdad. Contrary to media reports, a temporary cessation of maneuver operations was already planned in Cobra II to allow sufficient time and space for logistics units to arrive, to refuel, and to refit the maneuver units for operations to first isolate Baghdad and then conduct armored raids into the city. The pause was also necessary for forces to prepare properly for Saddam's expected chemical weapons attack once coalition forces neared Baghdad. Neither McKiernan nor Wallace was willing to cross the Iraqi regime's supposed trigger line for chemical weapons attacks without the logistics and the security along the lines of communications necessary to complete operations to Baghdad. Franks did not share McKiernan and Wallace's view that a pause was necessary and urged the two commanders to keep going. At CENTCOM's level, the sophisticated battle-tracking technology that showed the locations of friendly and enemy units seemed to show no real resistance that merited slowing the Fifth Corps' advance. In Franks's mind, the Fedayeen and other irregulars were merely a harassing force that should not distract from the main effort to destroy the Republican Guard. Nevertheless, McKiernan persuaded Franks that adjustments were in order as he remained fixed on clearing the cities that threatened CFLCC's lines of communications. If the Fedayeen could cause that much damage to one transportation convoy, they could wreak similar havoc on other logistics and support convoys moving north to assist the other CFLCC maneuver forces. In addition, even though the 5th Corps forces had halted temporarily on the west side of the Euphrates to refit and refuel, other CENTCOM units continued to pressure the enemy. At CENTCOM, Franks and Central Air Force, or CENTAF, now AFCENT or Air Force Central, Commander Lieutenant General Ted Michael Mosley used the cover provided by the storm to fly additional sorties to destroy enemy military positions and regime strongholds, including the NIDA, Baghdad, and Hammurabi Republican Guard divisions around Baghdad. Wallace used the temporary halt in major operations to evaluate how he would secure his lines of communications. Looking at a map of friendly forces, he observed that 5th Corps was operating west of the Euphrates and 1st MEF was largely operating to the east of the Euphrates toward the Tigris River, leaving a huge salient between the Euphrates and Highways 1 and 8 running from Samawa north to Najaf and Karbala. In addition to the threat posed by Iraq's paramilitary forces operating in the urban areas, Wallace was also concerned that if the Iraqis chose to put artillery into that salient, they could fire laterally into the 5th Corps and 1st MAF formations. Wallace, therefore, tasked the 101st Airborne Division and the remaining elements of the 11th Attack Helicopter Regiment to isolate and clear Najaf and Karbala, and he requested that the 82nd Airborne Division be allocated to him to secure Samawa. 
The sandstorm also provided McKiernan the opportunity to make his final decision about which units he would use to seize Saddam International Airport, or SIAP, and which he would allocate to secure CFLCC's lines of communications. In January 2003, CFLCC and Fifth Corps discussed a branch plan tasking Special Operations Forces or a brigade from the 82nd Airborne Division to seize the airport in the event of early regime collapse, but that scenario had not occurred. Both the 82nd and 101st Airborne Divisions also had been ordered to be prepared to seize SIAP, but the failed deep attacks and intelligence about the substantial Iraqi air defense preparations on the airfield gave McKiernan pause about air insertions. Because the 3rd Infantry Division had advanced far more quickly to Baghdad than the plan envisioned, its units were best positioned to reach the airport, where a brigade-sized unit of the Special Republican Guard was preparing to defend the airfield. Accordingly, on March 26th, McKiernan decided to use a brigade of the 3rd Infantry Division to seize the airfield and the brigade of the 82nd Airborne Division in Kuwait, CFLCC's operational reserve, along with a portion of the 2nd Armored Cavalry Regiment to clear the urban areas along CFLCC's lines of communication in the south. CFLCC would not reconstitute an operational reserve until the 4th Infantry Division arrived in theater in April. Franks had reservations about McKiernan's changes. Franks preferred that the 101st Airborne Division take SIAP, a dramatic move that would immediately put forces in Baghdad. Based on his experiences in Afghanistan, where special operations forces and air power had defeated the irregular Taliban forces, he believed the operators and other units with A-10 close air support could dispose of the Iraqi paramilitary forces in the southern cities. What Franks failed to account for, McKiernan pointed out, was that the special operations forces in Afghanistan had worked with organized resistance groups who were familiar with the terrain and could provide pinpoint targets and assessments, but there were no such linkages between coalition special operations and Iraqi resistance groups. McKiernan's argument carried the debate. Meanwhile, the Iraqi military was temporarily emboldened by its early perceived successes against U.S. and British forces near Samawa, Nasiriyah, and Umm Qasr, particularly after news reports spread about the American prisoners of war from the 507th Maintenance Company. These supposed successes led Iraqi military leaders to believe that the coalition forces would enter Iraqi cities, including Baghdad, only reluctantly, and reaffirmed their misplaced faith in the abilities of the Iraqi military. However, this Iraqi optimism was short-lived. Although the Fediyin were fierce fighters, their recent arrival into the southern cities meant that they were unfamiliar with the terrain, and they also were at a distinct disadvantage in terms of firepower and skill. As a result, their casualties tended to be severe. As the mother of all sandstorms, as media reports dubbed it, descended on Iraq, Saddam, his son Kusay, and other senior military leaders were in the process of guessing wrong about the coalition's advance, having convinced themselves they were being attacked from three directions. The presence of coalition special operations forces in Anbar led the Iraqi leadership to conclude that a conventional military force was moving on Baghdad from Jordan, while the marine operations near Kut encouraged the belief that the coalition's main effort was maneuvering east of the Euphrates River. While it was clear coalition units were also moving north along the west bank of the Euphrates, the Iraqi senior defense leadership considered that approach only a tertiary effort, and consequently, Kusay denied Republican Guard requests to destroy a main Euphrates bridge leading into the Karbala Gap, a move that might have slowed the advance on Baghdad considerably. 
While V Corps moved toward the Karbala Gap, the Republican Guard divisions prepared to defend as far forward of Baghdad as possible. The Medina Division remained in place near Karbala and Suwaira and became the primary conventional force defending the east side of the Karbala Gap. The Baghdad Division of the Republican Guard was near Numania and Kut, guarding the Tigris approach to Baghdad, while the Nebuchadnezzar Division near Hilla covered the central approach to Baghdad. One regiment of Iraqi Special Operations Forces remained in Baghdad, while another moved south to patrol the area around Diwaniya, and the Iraqi 26th Division prepared to raid the coalition troops securing lines of communications between Najaf and Hilla. End of Chapter 4, Part 1 The Invasion of Iraq, March to April 2003 Read by Adam Cable, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 2021